You're listening to episode 388 of the GNU World Order. My name's Klaatu. In this episode, we're going to talk about important things like CentOS and TexInfo. CentOS, of course, is the Community Enterprise Linux distribution, and TexInfo is a package that ships with Slackware, and that's what we generally do in this show lately, is go through every single package in the Slackware Linux distribution, because Slackware has a lot of, of packages in it. It has a lot of apps that get bundled with it, so it's a great it's a great one to look at to see what probably exists on a lot of Linux distributions out there. Now, if you're not running Slackware, some of this stuff might not come pre-installed on your Linux distribution, but that's okay. You can, if you're interested in it, you can probably find what I'm talking about in your software repository. And if not, that's okay. It's, it's all open source, so you can download it and install it yourself. And if you have no interest in doing any of that, that's okay too, because end of the day, worst case scenario, you've learned about a new open source software thing that you did not know uh, uh, as much about previously. Okay, so let's first talk about this CentOS thing. CentOS, the C is for community, ENT is for enterprise, OS is operating system. A rebuild of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Red Hat Enterprise Linux, also called RHEL, R-H-E-L, is the flagship product of Red Hat, a very major company that sells support for Linux and has done since the 90s or something. CentOS is quite popular because, number one, it's zero dollars, but you get most of the benefits of an expensive enterprise Linux distribution called RHEL. So that, that makes it quite appealing for people. Now, somewhat less discussed among, I guess, the community of Linux, because this, this typically doesn't really come up for just normal folk like you and I, but for systems administrators, which you may have been at one point, I may have been at one point, well, I was, I not may have been, I, I, I worked as a sysadmin for a while, so for system administrators, there's a real benefit to CentOS because you don't have to deal with subscription management. Now, subscription management on RHEL has gotten a lot better since when I was using it. There was an old thing called RHN, or Red Hat Network, and I'm, I, I just, to be perfectly honest with you, like the, the setup sequence for, for RHN, when, you know, you, if you, if you called up a salesperson at Red Hat and purchased a subscription, uh, yeah, a, subscri- a support contract, and and then installing Red Hat onto your onto your server, and then registering it with RHN. It was not a pleasant experience. It was not one of those things where it's kind of uh, you know they don't step you through it. It, it it is not it is not an event in your life that that is a, a joyful one. It was a very unpleasant experience. It was very difficult to go through. You you purchased it. You got the you got your manager to sign off on it. You you, you did all the paperwork for it. You finally got your login for where you're going to download the images, and then you download, and then you're just kind of on your own. You realize very sort of very slowly that you're just kind of out there on your own. And you realize, oh my gosh, where's my? Why isn't this a pleasant experience? Like, why is this so hard? And you have to really, really investigate, like how how to how to activate your your RHN account and so on. So it was, and, and then, you know, you, you eventually stumble on the documentations and you eventually get to the part in the documentation that's talking about what you do and so on, but it is not easy. And I got the sense when I was doing it back then that it was kind of designed for maybe someone who was certified a Red Hat certified administrator or something. Like maybe this is stuff they go over and they just kind of expect you to know when you make the purchase. But I, I very much felt like, well, this doesn't very, this doesn't really feel like, like I'm getting what I paid for. 
Now, after that, you eventually do get what you paid for. You 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 didn't get the experience, but you do get the you get the um or the pleasant experience. You, but you do get the actual support, and and that that feels great. And you have this this contract, and you're getting all the updates, and they're very prompt, and it is totally worth the money for a systems administrator. But if if you can avoid the RHN experience, you did. Now these days they've done away with RHN, and they've got a, a subscription manager, beautiful thing. You can sign on to a web admin console where you can see what systems you have registered and so on. It is quite nice. It's a completely different experience, luckily. But this is a, a relatively recent thing. So CentOS gained a lot of traction just by virtue of the fact that you didn't have to deal with the RHN. It was not uncommon for people to purchase a support contract with Red Hat and then load CentOS onto a server anyway, because especially since 2014, people were, if you called Red Hat and you said, hey, I'm running CentOS and I have a support contract, they would support it. So that was a, a real, real boost. It was a, a, a sincere, honest boost to the user experience, simply because you didn't have to put up with some of the the red tape, I guess. You, you got the red hat without the red tape. I just made that up on the spot. Okay, well recently, within the past couple of weeks, Red Hat announced that CentOS was changing focus. And instead of being a rebuild of RHEL, it was now a development stream based on what was happening in RHEL. So it was kind of a middle ground between Fedora, which is the bleeding edge. It's it's way out there. It's doing everything that it wants to do. It doesn't care what breaks. Lots of updates. Weekly updates. You can't turn them off. They're always happening. You can not accept them, but you can't turn off that reminder that they're that they're out there. Trust me, I've tried. So there's there's Fedora, and then there's Rel itself, which lags way, way, way behind. Very, very conservative. Doesn't want to change. Does not want to progress through things. It just wants to everything to just run exactly the same as it has been. And if you're a sysadmin, that's exactly what you want. You don't want to have to keep up with changes and breakages and things like that. You just want everything to continue to work as it worked yesterday. No change. Rel, Fedora, somewhere in the middle now, there's this thing called CentOS Stream. Now, that on its own is fine, but what they've announced a couple of weeks ago was that CentOS Stream was the only CentOS from now on. There is, There are no more CentOS rebuilds. There are no, or rather, RHEL rebuilds. That, that arrangement has ended, and people have reacted accordingly. There's been a, a very strong reaction out there among Linux users, because this is a big deal. And I kind of wanted to talk about why it was a big deal for, for different reasons for different people. So number one, the ugly one, is that when Red Hat announced that CentOS Stream is the new the reality of CentOS, that 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 is what CentOS now is, when they announced that, they, they also sort of, as an aside, mentioned that the support for CentOS 8, which just released, I don't know, what, two years ago, a year ago? The support for CentOS 8 was coming to an end. If you had loaded CentOS 8 onto a, a, a server, or a hundred servers, you would count it on support lasting until, I don't know, 2028 or something, or 2029, then the, it has been announced, essentially, that support's over. No more updates for you. And that's kind of a big deal. Uh, that could really upset some plans. And I'm not too sure why that would have been done uh, as a, you know, from a company, from the company side of things. I, I don't, I don't understand why Red Hat would have, would have done that, except that apparently it's not worth their time and or money to to continue to produce uh the the updates that they that they sent out that they send out to rel 
it's not worth their time and money to produce uh, CentOS versions of those updates. And and I, I guess that's it. I mean, I guess that's that. And and if you've got a support contract, as I was saying before, um, then then I guess you you just cross-grade your CentOS install to a proper RHEL install. You deal with Subscription Manager, which again, nowhere near RHN levels of um, fiddling, so you, you can you can do that. It's not it's not a bad thing. Uh, and and then you're just on the rel stream, as it were, and and now you've got your supports. If you didn't purchase that contract, then then you need to convert. You you, you probably if you if you want that continued support, you're gonna have to buy a contract and get onto rel. So it's it's a very much a switch and bait type of feeling scenario. Um, and it's not good. It's not a good look, I don't think, for anybody involved. Um, I do have thoughts about that, though. And there are two thoughts that I have. One is that this is what a contract is. Um, the, the, the CentOS support ending in 2021 instead of 2028 or whatever it would have been. That, that is exactly, that's exactly the thing that a contract is designed to avoid. And CentOS is an enterprise Linux without a contract. So in other words, what I'm saying is that RHEL hasn't, Red Hat hasn't actually betrayed CentOS in the way that many people are sort of feeling betrayed. Because that's, that's the point of RHEL is that you've got a contract and that when they say hey we are going to give you support until 2028 that that's what they're saying now if you want if you want assurance of something in today's world then what you do is you purchase a, a legal binding contract and and then that that thing persists no matter what and if it is broken then supposedly there are all kinds of interesting and probably very expensive legal um, reper- uh, um, things that you can do, repercussions, um, recourse. I don't know. There are things that you can do to um, to sort of regain what you've what you've invested into something. That's an ugly topic that I don't love, but I mean that's this is the business world that we're talking about. So it is kind of interesting to hear that support has ended early because I mean really that's that's the that's the thing, right? I mean like if if you have built your business around a Google product for instance, and then that Google product changes entirely or is discontinued, which Google is kind of famous for doing, then that's it. That's, that's the end. That, there's, no, there's no recourse. It is just the end. And that's kind of what's happened here with CentOS. There was, there was the intention of continuing support, and now it's over. And because there was never any kind of handshake happening, then that's just kind of the new reality. So I'm kind of ambivalent about this personally. I feel like it's a it's a poor public relations choice, but at the same time, it is also the thing. It, it, it's not to be unexpected. This is exactly the thing that you. This is the reason you do not run an operating system without a without a support contract in the big business world. Like this is the this is exactly that. Now there is also um, there are also several alternatives to CentOS that Red Hat is providing, such as. Red Hat developer um, licenses, which are, I believe, free. There, I don't, I don't know that they have self-support anymore. I'm not sure about their what 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 kind of contract they have for self-support lately. Um, but yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff out there that people can switch to with with minimal disruption. Yes, Red Hat itself has said we're not going to put out these support packages for for CentOS anymore 
after 2021 or, or whenever they've they've announced it officially. There is supposedly supposed to be a community around CentOS, as far as I understand it. I mean, this is Linux, it is open source, there should be a community here. Which means that someone within the CentOS community ought to be able to repackage the open source things that Red Hat releases for CentOS. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure where the loss here just seems like there ought to be packages getting generated by just someone not at Red Hat. I'm not convinced that support is literally going to end. I'm convinced that Red Hat itself is not going to support CentOS. But in terms of if you're running CentOS, it's not actually like your, your OS is dead in the water. It's just that you're not getting packages hand-delivered by Red Hat the corporation anymore. All right, put put a pin in that for a moment now, and because this is all going to kind of circle around. Um, so so that's the support side of things. I think another thing that people are getting upset about is, well, where's my zero dollar Linux? My my zero dollar enterprise Linux. Sorry, and maybe we should talk a little bit about what an enterprise Linux really means. But for now, we'll just assume that the enterprise, the world of the big businesses and the corporations and stuff, have different requirements than the world of the hobbyist or home user, and we'll just we'll just assume that. And so for for this discussion, we'll just take it on faith. If you've never used an enterprise Linux or if you've never had to answer to management about what kind of Linux you're running and such. We'll just assume that, we'll just take it on faith that Enterprise Linux is a unique thing. So people are asking, well, where's my $0 Enterprise Linux? And as it happens, and this is, I guess, the answer to my previous point of where's the community in all of this? Well, there is a community around all of this, and it turns out that they exist at a place, at least initially, right now, the first to kind of rise up to to the surface has been rockylinux.org. That's R-O-C-K-Y linux.org. And it is a little project started by Gregory Kurtzer, who was the founder of the CentOS project back when, when CentOS was a new thing. And it is a community enterprise operating system designed to be 100% bug-for-bug compatible with America's top enterprise Linux distribution. And and that's, that's its own little blurb right on its front page, rockylinux.org. So there is a community answer to all this. If you're running CentOS, you switch over your repos to rockylinux.org. I mean, don't do that right like right now. I don't know the status of their, their repositories. But at, at some point, maybe now, uh, you can switch your repositories over to rockylinux.org. And voila, there's all of your updates again. So exactly what I was saying just, just moments ago when I was asking, where's the community? Well, that's where the community is. They are providing they're providing the, the resolution here at rockylinux.org. But I think a, maybe a bigger question here, in a way, is, and I've been asking this question for a very long time, why, I'm going to, to, to put it very bluntly, why doesn't Red Hat want people to use Red Hat, to use Red Hat? Why, why do they not want people to use their product? Or, or, or asked another way, why don't they want the, the, the concept Red Hat to be synonymous with Linux. And the the counterpoint or the compare the basis of comparison here is surely canonical for me. Ubuntu was for a very long while, no, not a long while, for a a very significant time. Ubuntu was synonymous with Linux. Like if you said, "Oh, I run Linux," and people's eyes sort of started to sort of glaze, you could then rescue that situation by saying, "You know, Ubuntu." And then Bang! Light of recognition. 
And they're like, yes, I, yeah, I heard of that. I don't know how they hear of it, but people heard of Ubuntu. Like it was a very common thing. I've told stories on this show about how I was at a, I went to a, um, a rock concert back in Pittsburgh one time, and the ticket person was talking about how she was running Ubuntu because she'd found it online randomly and, and thought, wow, a free a free way to run my computer? Okay, yeah, I'll take it. You know, just no outside influences. Just random people would stumble upon Ubuntu and they would be running it. Um, it was a big deal. And then for some reason, and this is, again, very significant... Canonical has, as far as I can tell, stepped away from Ubuntu a little bit. You can't really, I mean, not really, I mean, they're, they're still, it's still a product, but you can't, if you go to Canonical or to Ubuntu.com, you don't get the sense, oh, this is a friendly Linux distribution for humans like it used to be. You get the sense now that, oh, this is a cloud technology company doing a lot on the servers and container spaces uh, in the cloud. Gee, it'd be kind of cool if I could run it on my local computer. How can I find out more information about that? That would have never happened eight years ago. You, you'd, you'd never have had that experience. You would go to Ubuntu.com, and the fact that it was a, a, a an operating system for normal computer users that you could put onto your device right now, that was at the very front of of everything. That was their, their reason for existing. It was a big deal. It was important. And nowadays, you can barely find mention of it. I'm, I'm maybe using a little bit of hyperbole here, but but in many ways, I don't think I'm off. I'm off base. They they've they've largely walked away from that image of we're just the 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 little computer company who's who's making a, a great OS for 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 the normal normal population. And and I think that the you know the quintessential moment that kind of embodies all of that and it's probably still going on today, the opening and closing of Ubuntu's very first bug filed by Mark Shuttleworth himself saying Windows has, you know, the the has the the majority of the market share and, and that's the bug that Ubuntu is going to try to to tear down. And he closed that bug very significantly in some point, in some recent year, um, maybe seven years ago, I don't know. Um, and, and I think that was, you know, people, people knew what it meant, and I think everyone was basically right, that they had given up that particular fight, even though through, through wording and, and language and, and, and clever logic, it, he kind of demonstrated that, well, actually, Ubuntu has sort of won in many ways. And, you know, he's right. If you look at the top five supercomputers in the world, they run Ubuntu, probably. I don't know. I haven't checked for it lately. But, I mean, you know, like, there, there's a there's an angle th- through which you could, from, from which you can view this and say, yes, this is, this is correct. But the spirit of that bug, the spirit of Ubuntu being Linux for humans, um, I think was never really, that that was abandoned. And, you know, Red Hat abandoned that years and years and years and years before, back in like 2006-ish, where they walked away from Red Hat Linux. That's not Red Hat Enterprise Linux, it's just Red Hat Linux. They walked away from that, passed it over to a community project called Fedora, and that they that was it. That was how they, that was their decision to, to walk away from their own bug number one. I mean, not literally, but you know, the the, the fight for Linux on the desktop that they abandoned that when they ha- they passed it over to Fedora and of course they abandoned it in such a way that it sounded empowering and 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 wonderful and hopeful and things like that but I mean that was what that was and so you just kind of have to look at 
at Red Hat walking away from from CentOS and just think, well, why would they do that? Like, do they continue? Why why would they want to continue to to push people away from the Red Hat brand? And I say that because CentOS was adopted by Red Hat back in 2014, I think it was. And prior to this adoption, before Red Hat stepped in and said, okay, well, we will we will sponsor CentOS. We will support CentOS. Prior to that, if you'll recall, like back in 2009, I think it was, there were some really serious upheavals over at CentOS. At least this is the way I, I remember it. Uh, one of their their one of their developers, someone who owned a bunch of 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 CentOS infrastructure logins or something, had kind of apparently disappeared or something or had gone missing or or had just wandered away from his computer for a little bit too long i don't know because there were some news stories out there how centos was without a maintainer or something like that and it was a big big deal i remember like people were talking about it people were very concerned Uh, just around that same time scientific linux which was sponsored by the folks over at cern um that that had sort of risen to prominent prominence and people were were switching. They were jumping ship. They were they were converting their CentOS boxes over to Scientific Linux because the CentOS seemed really really unsure for a while. Like it looked like it was a project that was going to fall apart. I mean, and I know I remember this pretty clearly because I was one of those people. I did not have confidence in CentOS because of of, of sort of some of the infrastructure problems they were having. And I, I switched all my servers over to Scientific Linux, and it was great. It was it worked perfectly. Scientific Linux has since gone away, as far as I understand, but uh, CentOS got adopted by Red Hat, and so it, it persisted until recently, I guess. But the question still is, why would Red Hat not want people... No, why, why wouldn't they want to bring Red Hat uh, people into the Red Hat fold? And I think the answer is probably exactly the same as, as Canonical's answer. I think the answer really is that ultimately the... the battle for mind share in the Linux distribution space, I guess, isn't as important as at least I imagine it is. For me, personally, here's what I see. I'm not in marketing. I'm not a business person. I don't know. But for me, it seems to me like if you if you acclimate people to your distribution when, when people are just getting into Linux, then when those same people grow up and become systems administrators, the Linux that they bring with them is the one that they've been acclimated to. And so the support contracts that they purchase, or that they tell their managers to purchase, or their, their finance, uh, the, whoever is in charge of their finances, um, is that Linux. And, and that's exactly what happened for me. I, I started out well, on Slackware, but but I, I I eventually found my way over into the Fedora camp because I really enjoyed the the breakneck speed of of their updates and their their the progress. Different times, I was a different person then. Um, and uh, so I got into to Fedora and and I got a job as a sysadmin eventually. And just the obvious answer for me was to get a Red Hat support contract. That was the obvious one because I didn't want to have to learn to use apt as well as I could use yum at the time. I didn't want to learn how to um, h- how to uh, navigate the Debian way of of, of of splitting up some of the application configuration files. Uh, I didn't want to have to deal with apt's propensity to start services after installing without me explicitly telling it to start and enable the service and so on. So it was just really an obvious choice for me to go with a Red Hat contract, and that's what I did, and, and, and it was great. So for me, that seems like a very logical, natural kind of marketing technique of just 
showing people, hey, this is this is what we have for you. You should use it and learn it. And then when you go somewhere and someone says, hey, you you gotta get uh you gotta get insurance for that thing, then the natural way, the, the natural prog- progression for you is to purchase our insurance and not the other guy's insurance. It just seems like a normal thing to me. But apparently that's not important because Canonical has largely walked away from Ubuntu as far as I can tell in terms of that sort of push for the mind share. Uh, Red Hat walked away from it and continues to walk away from it by discontinuing CentOS. So in other words, I think that it, as simple and as basic as it seems, and this is a phenomenal thing to me that it's this simple, but a as far as I can tell, and again, not a business person, no knowledge of anybody's numbers, neither Canonical nor Red Hat or Open Source or uh, Open Source or anybody else. But from what I can tell, what I'm what I'm getting from all of these events is that if you are not giving money to the company for the the for the product, then they don't want to hear about you. They do not care about you. If you don't come knocking at their door with cash in hand, then they just don't you just don't matter to them and i don't mean that in a sort of uh critical way i'm just saying apparently if you're running a business and the way that your business makes money is by charging admittance fees then when someone comes in to just hang out you don't want them there you you want to eject them you do not care about them and i think that's a very natural kind of thing to do i do i'm just surprised that it's that simple because i always would have thought well surely you need a neon sign out front to attract people, but apparently not. You don't need that. Apparently, if you are an enterprise Linux company, then you know people are going to come knocking on your door eventually, and if they've got cash, then you'll let them in. And if they don't, they can go use something else. Come back when you got money for us. So, I mean, it, it makes sense. And I think, in a way, that's that's a big... that's one of the lessons here, and this is a lesson that I've taken away from from open source recently in in a major way, and that is that sometimes open source is not zero dollars. We've known that. That's a that's a thing. Sometimes it's not zero dollars, and I think that in in today's in our current model of of economics, as ugly as that may be, and I mean that profoundly, but in this system that we've set up, I think it's it's okay and almost expected to pay for open source, and I think that's okay as long as that's being communicated. For instance, Ardour, A-R-D-O-U-R, Ardour, the digital audio workstation. Really nice, really nice little application. It's totally open source. The author asks that people pay for it. He's asking for people to pay for his product, for his open source application, and he asks quite nicely that distributions refrain from packaging it, so that people have to go to his website and download it, and either willfully decline to pay for it, or or to pay at least one dollar for it, or to subscribe. And I subscribe to it, and I'm I, I happily subscribe to it because the work he does is amazing. And so on the one hand, I and I feel fine about that because he's asking and he's communicating. He's being clear about what he what he wants and what he needs, which is hey, I want to work on this full time. In order for me to do that, I would like for you to pay for the product. And I, I, I don't have a problem with that. Now, I do have a problem with what that kind of thing threatens, which is a future where all open source is open, but if you're not really very good at computing yet, then maybe you might have to just pay for it. So then th- there's the, this sort of unnatural, uneasy paywall, which, I mean, the, re- the very reason I was able to get into computers at all was because there were no charges. I was able to get into computers and to Linux and to my current job and and all of these things that have happened to me 
in my life that have been huge game changers for me, life changers, literal life changers for me, it was because they were zero dollars. And at the time when I was turning to computing as as sort of the alternative for myself, I mean, I needed zero dollars. I was in a bad way. I needed I needed that zero dollar price tag. Because otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So I don't want to lose that. And I think that open source itself protects us from that dystopia. I, I don't think that open source can become a pay-to-play thing. I think that as long as there are enough people to rebuild packages, then we're going to be okay. But I would want I would want to kind of keep an eye on that and kind of do some reality checks here and there to make sure that we're not going f- too far down uh this kind of pay-to-play path. But in the meantime, I do believe that open source charging money is a necessary evil. It is just something, unfortunately, that sometimes people have to do, whether it's because they need money so that they can work on it full-time, or whether it's because they are a very large company employing lots and lots of people, and they simply need to make money off of the the thing that their people are doing. I mean, all of these things are are sort of to be expected, and I, I feel... Like I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm totally okay with that. And so the fact that Red Hat has said, "Hey, CentOS is dead now," except they haven't said that, right? They're, they've said CentOS is now CentOS Stream. It is the, it, it is the, the playground for RHEL. It, all that's done really is change people's the, the branding on people's operating system. It hasn't actually affected. It, it's not going to affect people as much as I think the reaction has led maybe might might lead you to believe. And the reason it hasn't affected people as much as you might think is because there is a community. There is the open source aspect here, and open source is designed to protect us exactly from this. If someone needs to start charging for what they're doing, that's understandable in today's world. That is, that's how economies work. That is how our economy works. We, we don't have alternatives to that, really. Not, not practically in the, in the, in, in our current model. We don't have really usable time banks or or, or uh, a really s- well-defined system of, tra- of, of bargain, uh, of bartering and, and that sort of thing, right? We, we base it on the abstraction that is money and that is what we have. And so if, you've, if you're doing the thing, then you need money once the thing is being sold. That's okay. That is to be expected. Open source, however, makes sure that there's still a way to get that thing if you don't have the money. And so the system is working is what I'm, I've, I've spent the last half hour talking about just the idea that the system is working. This is open source at its finest. CentOS is dead. There are alternatives out there. And in the worst case scenario, there are still alternatives out there because the convenience of CentOS might be dead, but that doesn't mean the code isn't there. And so yes, as a sysadmin, you probably don't really want to have to rebuild all of your own packages. I get that. I see how that's not a reasonable solution. But by the letter, and that's all we really care about right now, by the letter, there has been no violation. There's been no transgression, no betrayal. Open source is working. And open source is bigger than Red Hat. It's bigger than Canonical. It's bigger than all those things. And as long as we keep our eye on the source code, then I think we're in a good place. So... If you're using CentOS, either switch to the stream, switch to RHEL, or switch to Rocky Linux. Choose your poison, and don't worry about it. It's still open source. We're in a good place. Let's go take a coffee break, then we'll talk about text info.
X-Info. It is the backbone to the info pages that you may have encountered on a GNU Linux system. And I say GNU significantly here because this text info thing is a GNU project. So it is not common, for instance, on a BSD system. You're not likely to find info on a BSD system. BSD uses man pages. That's the traditional Unix documentation system, as far as I know. It's based on TROF or INROF or whatever, the ROFs as we've already covered in previous episodes. And the, the folks over at GNU, when they were designing GNU, GNU's not Unix, when they were designing their, their Unix-like operating system, they saw the, the, the system for documentation, they looked at it and thought, well, we could do that better. And amazingly, they did. If you're not used to the info system, I highly suggest you take a look at it. It is definitely the Betamax to ManPages VHS. It is a clearly, technically superior product. When you look at text info, when you look at an info page, I mean, it, it is just the obvious better idea. It, it has, for instance, hyperlinking. So if you're reading an info page and you see something interesting that you want more information about, or it's referring you to a different section, then you can, you can go to that, to that point, hit return, and it will send you away to that to that link. And so you can, you can, it's a dynamic documentation workflow. You, you don't have to, it's not, it doesn't have to be completely linear. And in a man page, of course, I mean, what you see is what you get. You're just, you're reading a document that's been rendered to look a little bit better than its source. Info pages also are a little bit better about knowing what system they're being displayed on. So for instance, it, it is designed primarily as an electronic document format, but it, it's perfectly happy to be converted into, uh, for, for print, which, I mean, these days, in 2020, we, we don't, that's not a big deal, because we have Pandoc, and we can just convert practically anything to something that will print out, to a postscript document or a PDF for print, whatever. It, that's not a big deal to us, but, I mean, info, the info, text info, has had that feature from the beginning, pretty much. It was designed with the knowledge that, well, sometimes we're going to want to display this on a screen, and then other times we're going to want to print this out. And so you can, you can write stuff in text info and, and then publish it in, in a hard, hard, hardcover, uh, book and, or, you know, a, uh, what was it? Hard copy, a hard copy as a hard copy. And I, I believe, and I'm kind of flipping frantically through this right now to, to get verification, but I kind of want to say that my, um, introduction to programming an Emacs Lisp book from, from GNU Press, I kind of want to say that it was written in text info. And I could be wrong, uh, because I'm not seeing that note anywhere in here immediately. But yeah, I could be wrong about that. Either way, um, it is a, it is a system that was designed for for both digital and traditional dead tree formatting, which is quite nice. So let's let's look at text info. Um, you know, like I say, it is a bit of a, a Betamax VHS situation because it, it really, it, it hasn't, it is not as ubiquitous as a man page. And so half the time when you type in info, you know, some command, then yes, it will open up info for you. There's a displayer, there's a, a display application that, that can read and display and process info files for you, text info files. So it'll, it'll open that up, but it will just load the man page content into the reader, which I mean, in a way, all, almost makes me think it's probably it's probably not completely. It, it would probably make sense to just not use the man viewer and just use info like by default. Unfortunately, many of us have learned that when you need help, a quick help on on 
on an application or on a command, you type in man and then that application or that, uh, yeah, that command. So I, I don't know how well we can break ourselves of that habit, but it's not a bad habit to have because the worst case, the worst case you get is you get a man page in a perfectly serviceable viewer and uh that's not such a bad thing um whereas a better case is that you um is that you maybe get an info page which is even better so yeah i after thinking about it some i'm, I'm gonna make a concerted effort on my part to replace man with info and you know i'm not and in fact as of this past week i have aliased man to info so even when i accidentally type in man it takes me to info instead and it's perfectly perfectly usable like it is it is fine as a man page reader so just as a way to keep man off your system you can use info and still get the man pages and that's an important an important thing to realize is that man the the command man isn't in fact maybe that's what i'll do instead of aliasing it maybe i'll just remove man it seems kind of crazy but but maybe i will that's that's something that i might actually do it, it is important to realize that that man itself the 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 man package that doesn't include the actual man pages it is simply the application that displays man pages. So you can you can get rid of man, the, the package, without getting rid of all of the default man pages that came on your system or, or whatever. So that's, or at least on Slack where you can. I won't commit to that on any other system because I don't know what weird connections the RPM or, or Debbie, uh, the .deb, you know, or the apt, rather, database. I don't know what kind of connections they make. They might, you know, you, you remove man and you, then they remove your kernel. Who knows? That's the price you pay for running something that's not Slackware. But on Slackware, anyway, you can get rid of the man package and, and live a perfectly normal life. So I might do that. Um, I've, I've aliased it for now, but I might actually just get rid of man entirely. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this this documentation format that, that nobody uses. Um, so it was invented... Back in the, I don't know, probably the 80s, I'm going to imagine. It was written initially by Richard Stallman and then um, adapted or, or sort of maybe rewritten or, or maintained, I guess, by Brian Fox and a couple of other people. So it's it's been through a couple of maintainers, but but the initial drive was to make this this format that was arguably better than something like Groff and Trough and Groff. Uh, and if you look at a man page, or at an info page, rather you get kind of a sense of how it wants to structure itself. And typically it goes from, well, and you can, the, I guess a surefire way to see a, a valid info page is to type in info space info. That gives you the info page for the GNU info tool, which is the, the reader of info. So in other words, you're reading about the thing that you're using. Um, and you, you along the top, you get a note about what's next and what happens if you go up. Now, in this case, because we're at the top of the info page, we're at the top of the, the first thing that we've opened. In this case, up would take us back to kind of the, the main contents of the entire info system on, on your computer. So if I hit U for up, now it takes me to kind of an almost little bit of, it looks a little bit scary, but it's, it's an index page, essentially. This is the top of the info tree. That's what it says. So there's no up from here can't go up we're, we're already up at the top and it this just lists every single info page installed on your system pretty much and it has nice little categories it, it, it can categorize things by GNU packages by libraries by Emacs um, uh, nodes by miscellaneous 
and so on. So you can kind of browse through your entire documentation system here in the info in this index page, which is kind of useful. Now you can also search the thing by going to um, control S for uh, control S for search. So if I type in info, for instance, then I, I finally do get to text info documentation system. And then it tells me, well, in this category, I have info, which is info, and that's documentation browsing system. I've got standalone info program, that's info STD, STND, standalone info reading program, text info, information about text info, um, make info, text C2DVI, text index, and so on. So I'll just go back to my info one where, where I started, and uh, it's telling me that this is the beginning of, oh, that's not the right info, okay. I'm going to go back up. I'm going to go to the standalone, because I think that's where we were. Yeah, that's where I was. Okay, standalone GNU info. That's what the, the, the info page that we're reading is. Um, so that, that's the top. It tells you what's next in the natural flow of things, and it tells you what happens if you go up. Now, if you if you do nothing and just treat this like a man page, and you just hit the down arrow to go to the next, next uh, screen, or actually it takes you through the lines, but, I mean, eventually you'll get to the next screen, and the next screen would be, again, naturally standalone info. And, and it told you that that would be the next thing. It, it knows sort of the way that this, the linear way that this was written. If you kind of hit your down arrow a couple of times, you can read through the document. I mean, you don't have to hit your arrow for that, but I mean, as you read, you'll see, for instance, the title of this document, which is standalone GNU info. And then there's a couple of paragraphs about what you're reading. And then there's a menu section. And this is pretty common in info pages. You have usually at the top of your info chapter, you have your title, a brief intro, and then a menu. And the menu more or less follows the linear flow of what you're reading, and it tells you what you're what to expect. So in this case, the first section in this in this document is standalone info. That's different from standalone GNU info. This is a different section. Poorly, maybe maybe confusingly named. Standalone info. What is info? Now if I move my cursor over that, that there's underlined text. So if I move my cursor onto that underlined text, the underline disappears, which is weird. That, that seems like a poor choice to me for user interface. Because what if I forget now that this is a hyperlinkable thing? I don't know. It's weird to me. But um, anyway, you move your cursor onto it and you can hit return. And then that takes you to the next section. Now, once again, if I go to the, ne the very next section, which is standalone info, then all I have to do to get back to where I was is just go up a couple of times and then I'm and then I'm back sort of in the flow, the linear flow of that document. Now if I go to some random place way down in the middle of the document, here here's one called variables, so I'll go to variables. Now I'm at variables. Well now if I go up, well, it tells me previous is miscellaneous commands. So if I hit my up arrow, I find myself in a section called, if I go all the way up to the top here, I predict it's going to be called, yep, there it is, uh, uh, miscellaneous commands, uh, section 11, miscellaneous commands. And I can keep going up and up, and eventually I'll get back to that main page with the menu on it. Or I could hit, uh, let's see, can I can I go U for up? What, what, where, where will that take me? Well, it says that if I hit up, then I'll be taken to window commands. And now that I'm in manipulating multiple windows, if I go up again, I'll be at the top. And yes, I am at the top. So there's navigation is what I'm trying to say. And the navigation is... It, it takes a little while to get used to, but it also does prompt you a lot. It, it kind of tells you what to expect. You do not have to. You have to know some some keyboard shortcuts here. 
U for up, up arrow just for the you know, previous line or the next line. You can also use Emacs commands, so Control N for next line, Control P for previous line, Control S to search, a couple of things like that. Not not all Emacs commands are valid, but but I, I maybe don't maybe I wouldn't want to call them. Well, I wouldn't want to call them. I was gonna say maybe they're better con- considered Bash keyboard shortcuts, but that's not quite true either, because Control s in Bash does not search. You get the idea, though. So it's it's a navigatable, non-linear documentation system, and it's pretty nice to use. So what is it like to write? Um, it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, it is definitely, it's got that old, that kind of old understanding of what reasonable markup might look like. And, and if that's a feature to you, then that's a feature, and if it's a, if it's a bug, then it's a bug. It really depends on how you feel about documents that you are that you have to read the source of. Definitely reading a text info document, which ends in .text info or .tex sometimes, or .txi I think is another one that they sometimes use, or .texi texi. Um, reading a, a, a source text info file can be well, it's just not as pretty as something like Markdown, which again, Markdown its its goal, its admirable goal, admirable goal is to is to make it seem like you're not reading source code that you're just reading plain text there's no markup here it's marked down and i mean you know if if you're careful you can achieve that with markdown but then again you you also see a lot of markdown that falls back on html which is my frequent criticism of it so i don't know how well it even does that but it certainly does it better than text info text info relies mostly on what they call at commands and these are are document-specific commands, or, or rather system-specific commands for, for text info, that are preceded by the at symbol. So for instance, at comment, which is abbreviated as just at C, is a comment. It's a comment statement. So anything after at C on that line, it becomes a comment that is not uh, ever, ever rendered you know, by the document reader. Uh, and and it, it's a dynamic system. So um, there, are, there are things, there are there's a document structure that you have to adhere to, and there are methods by which you can uh, define certain things and then recall them later. So, for instance, uh, a good one is that in your source code, you could have the the header of your of your document, and then you could do an at copying statement. You at copying, and then the next line, you can put your copyright statement, copyright 2020 CLAT 2 followed by your licensing statement, so, you know, your GNU free documentation license, or your Creative Commons license, whatever, the paragraph, and then you do an at end space copy. So now you've got this chunk of text that's designated as at copy, and at copying is a defined function of text info. It's not something that I just made up. It's something that exists, and you would find out about by reading the, the documentation for text info on GNU.org. And then later on, when you create your at title page and your at title space foo, then you can somewhere put in there at insert copying and then at end space title page. So now you've got a title page, starts with the title of the document, foo, and it inserts the copying statements. There's your, your copyright and your licensing block. And then it ends the title page. And then you can start your contents, at contents, and so on. So it is a it is not a literal text document. It, it, there is markup here. There, stuff is processed. Uh, it will not, when you render it, what you see is not necessarily, in the source code, is not necessarily what you're going to get in the render. And that's, that's a good, that's possibly a, a good thing. And I'm not saying that's a, it's like an essential thing. I'm just saying sometimes you want that. Um, and certainly if you're used to writing in XML or even HTML, 
then you're very, very accustomed to that. But if you're used to just writing in plain text or just markdown, then you would be less used to that, and maybe that wouldn't be as appealing to you. But let's work our way through a short sample text info file. And this is exactly, this is just the example provided by gnu.org slash software slash text info slash manual. So it's it's pretty straightforward, um, but I think it kind of sums up nicely the structure. I mean, this is the simplest possible text info document that you can make, the, the simplest uh, valid text info. So I think it's not a, a bad thing to try. Um, I have made text info pages for applications in the past for myself. Uh, I do, I find it kind of one of those difficult, it, it is, it, it's an, a difficult thing to justify after a while when you realize that nobody types in info anything. It's just force of habit. We type in man application. And unfortunately, man doesn't doesn't search for a valid info page to display. So it really it's very, very much one of those situations where we just we should do away with the man viewer. Like we we honestly should. We should just we can keep the command, but we should do away with the viewer because it's just not as flexible as info. Info will show you an info page if one exists, and if not, it falls back to the man pages. It's just the smarter choice. I digress. Let's get started on this little demo info document. Text info document. Uh so the header needs to be kind of specific and and the back end to text info is a toolset called tex tex i believe it's heavily related to latex i'm i still haven't really gotten deep enough into text and latex and all that to really understand the relationships but the back end of text info is text and so the the initial statement is a very latex looking statement at least to my eyes it's a bla a, a backslash and then input I-N-P-U-T, space text info. So as far as I know, that is essentially, I'm going to actually switch Emacs over to info, nope, sorry, text info mode. There we go. And that gives me a little bit of extra markup uh, help here. So yeah, backslash input text info. As far as I know, that's essentially loading, you know, sort of the module text info for 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 text info. Uh, and then I'm going to do an at command, and that is at set title, and we'll just do example, nope, sorry, sample manual 1.0. And that's the, the simplest possible header that you could have. The next section is the is some metadata about the document. So once again, we've got our at copying statement here, at copying, and then I'm just going to go back over to my custom, to the text info page that I have created for myself in the past and grab that GNU free documentation license with a copyright statement, which I'll update to 2020 and then end copying. We also need a title page and the command for that is at title page. And then we'll go to the next line and we'll do at title and we'll give it sample title. That's the, 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 the human readable title of this document is now going to be sample title. Actually, you know what? I'm going to spice things up. I'm going to make it my sample title. And then after title, we can do an at page. So that starts a new page. And the reason we're starting a new page is because we are going to place our insert copying statement here. Insert copying. So there's our copyright statement. And then we can end our page at end title title page. So our little block has title page and it's got the title. And then it does a, a page break, essentially, at page. And then it inserts the copying statement. Now in their example on, they have a vertical skip, which is at v skip, and then for attributes of that they put, so space 0 pt, so 0 points, plus, p-l-u-s, 1 fill, and that's 1 fill with 3 l's. So the v skip command inserts white space uh, in text output. It's ignored in the digital formats, it doesn't, doesn't care, but for printing it's gonna 
it's going to put a vertical space on the page. The zero point plus one fill means to put zero points of mandatory white space and as much optional white space as needed to push the text to the bottom of the page. So it's it's basically anchoring the copyright statement to the very bottom of the page. Uh, that is a little function in GNU text info, and when we talk about where we could get more at commands uh, and add that to our arsenal, then we'll, we'll, we'll find out where we would have known about at vskip without someone telling us about it. Okay, so that's the end of the, the title page, and then you would want to start your contents. And that is at contents. Now, the contents is, you know, your that's your table of contents. It is also the menu that starts at the top, or at the beginning, I should say, of an info page or a, an info document. So in all info documents, there's a top node which starts off your, your document. It's not something that's going to appear in your printed manual. It is something that, uh, for viewing it online uh, on the computer, uh, that then you'll have this this thing that is at the top of your you know that you deliver people to when they go to your to your document. So the at top command is what tells make info to to create a top level menu listing that people can browse through and see the, the different nodes contained within your within your document. So this is it within your at contents uh, and then you're gonna do at if not, text, right? So this is a conditional statement. If not text, meaning we're not going out to print here, then we do at node top. And that's just at node space and then top with a capital T. And then at top is um, my short sample. And that's just something that we're making up based on this GNU um, page. So this is a short sample and I'm going to type this in as my little little summary. This This is a short sample text info file. So this is our introductory statement. Our top node is called my short sample, and when people are here, they're going to get one sentence paragraph saying this is a short sample text info file, and then we're going to end if not text. So no one will see that if it's printed, but if it's digital, people will be delivered to this this sort of title-like page, the top node, and get an idea of what they've just of what they've just opened. Also on the contents page, we're going to need a menu, so that's going to be at menu and then we can create our, our, our chapter listing. Um, so we're going to do an asterisk, and we'll do first chapter, colon, colon, and this is the first chapter and only chapter. And the next line, we'll do another asterisk, and we'll call that index, colon, colon, and we'll call that um, complete index of contents, period. And then end space menu. Now we've got our table of contents, and of course we could add, as we were writing, we would go and add to that more. Like if we, if we came up with a second chapter eventually, then we might change, well, the first chapter isn't the only chapter anymore, and there's a new line, and we would type that in. So that is something that you have to manage yourself. That's not, it's not too unlike any other documentation system that I've really seen. I mean, in a way it is, I, I guess, because like Markdown, you create headers, and when it processes your Markdown, then if there is an allowance for a table of contents, then it kind of gleans that table of contents for you from what you've marked as a header. So it knows to list every header in the table of contents. And other documentation systems have similar things, whether there's I includes or index markers or whatever, ways to designate what is worthy of being included in a table of contents where appropriate. And sometimes there's a way to limit what how many, you know, how many levels down to list in that table of contents and so on. But for this one, 
you just do that yourself. You, you, you designate the nodes and you define them and that's perfectly acceptable, I think. So now we're going to create our first node, which is an at node command, and we're going to call it first chapter. It matches, matches up with the with our table of contents, or with our menu, sorry. And then we'll call this a chapter, at chapter, and again, we're just going to call it first chapter. You can also include this in our index, so at C index, and we'll call it, uh, the, you know, the keywords, we'll, we'll do chapter comma first. We'll type in some really boring contents here. This is the first chapter of this document. It was written with text info running on Slackware Linux. And there's normal normal kind of markup that you would expect from a, a documentation system. For instance, we can do at enumerate, at item. Uh, this is a list item. And then we'll do another at item. This is the second list item. And of course, to end the enumeration, you do an at end space enum enumerate. So there you go. That's um, that's some of the stuff you can do with with text info. But let's make another node now, because I know in our in our menu we've got first chapter, but we also have an index. So we need to define the index. So we'll do node index at at node space index, and then we can define what it looks like. We'll talk, we'll, we'll make it an un, at unnumbered index, and then at print index space cp, and then at by byE. That's the end of the document, and that's our info page. So if I save that, I'll save it in my demo directory as demo.txy. I can now go over to my demo directory, cd demo, I can see that I've got a Texi document called demo.texi. And so I can do a make, make, M-A-K-E, info, make info, all one string, demo.texi. And that processes it quite quickly and produces a demo.info file is the name of the file. So if I do info space demo.info, I get to see my new document. And it tells me that next is the first chapter up would take me to the directory. So if I go up, I go right back to the, in the, the top of the info tree. It's not really what I wanted to do though, so I'm gonna go back to my demo.info document and the first entry, because we're not in print, is my short sample. It's designated as a title and it's given a nice fancy little underline for with, with asterisks, so it looks like a title. And this is a short sample text info file. So that was the description that I provided. Again, not for print. And then we're, we're just, we, we get the menu. And the first entry in the menu is first chapter, and then the second one is index. I could either go to the first chapter by selecting first chapter and hitting return, or I could go to the index and hit return, or I can just keep arrowing down until the next document, or the next node, rather, and that's exactly what happens. And so now I'm in my first chapter, and it's designated one first chapter. It's given an underline, so it looks like a heading. This is the first chapter of this document. It was written with text info running on Slackware Linux. So it's, it's ignored my white space. It's made things that I've put on two lines uh, appear on one as a full paragraph, so it's a little bit like HTML or, or even Markdown in that sense. And then it shows me my numbered list. This is a list item. This is a second list item. Great. And now if I keep arrowing down or control in, I get to the index and it lists one index item, which is chapter first, first chapter, line six. It tells me even where it is. Hit return. I'm back in my first chapter and I can look through it and find line six maybe. Oh, it doesn't have a line line designator. Well, that's kind of funky. Um, but anyway, it, it, it shows you where, where that, that topic was. And really, really useful. Really, really nice little system. It is, um, it is in, in a way, a user interface that I could 
completely see for something like Gopher or Gemini or one of those protocols that seeking to kind of recreate the internet in a terminal window, but also um, improve it and make it more modern and flexible. And and I, I see TextInfo as, as being as being a very, very nice system for that. I, I really do. I, I, I quite like text info. It's, it's, I think it's, I don't think that we appreciate what it is trying to do quite as much as we ought to, because it really is a really nice little system. Okay, so now let's talk about some of the other things that come with this command, because that was, that was text info, like the format. Uh, but the, the thing that is provided by, by this package are, um, two, four, six, eight, looks like eight things. So one of those we've already talked about, info. That's provided by this package. It is the viewing application, which again, if I haven't made it clear, you probably ought to just use it instead of man. Stop typing man, start typing info. Fight the muscle memory or remove man from your system if it's safe to do that. And just start using info. It just makes more sense. It really does. It's a better application, and it will default to a man page when a man page is all that's available. It's just so smart, so smart. Okay, so you can hit Q for quitting out of this application. You can type question mark to list all info commands. H to start an info tutorial. Uh, And you can also view uh, text info manuals with, um, what is it, M for uh, a menu entry. And then you type in the name, like text info return. I'm going to go back up because that's not really what I, where I want to be. But I could do, for it, for instance, um, M, which gets gets me into this mode for a menu entry, and then do, um, let's see, here's one called PDIF. All right, why not? PDIF return, and then I'm taken to that. So in other words, if you are at, on this main page uh, of info, M saves you from having to scroll through the listing of the tree and it lets you go straight to a thing if you know what that thing is. So there's a little bit of a, a system within a system there. There is also in this package a thing called install-info. And install-info inserts menu entries from an info file into the top level dir file, dir file of the info system. So in other words, this takes an info file that you provide it and it makes sure that it gets listed there at the top of your at the top of the tree. You can, uh, there are a couple of different options. There's add once, specifies that the entry or entries are only put into a single section. Dash dash delete, delete the entry, so it's the reverse of install dash info. Dash dash description, specify the explanatory portion of the menu entry, so if you don't feel like your, your text info document has described itself well, you can override that when you're installing it. Dash dash info dash file equals some file, so you specify manually the info file to install in the directory. Info dir equals uh, the directory, so specify the directory where the directory file dir resides, equivalent to dir file equals dir dir. So in other words, you can specify what that up place is. In other words, you, you the, the default location of info on a system is slash usr slash um what is it share info or usr slash info i think usr slash info probably but you could have a separate info structure somewhere else and install info files to it if you wanted to i don't know why you would want to um yeah i think i think info is probably better as a unified system system-wide system-wide document essentially but you could have sub documents so that's install dash info next couple of tools are that 
really strange mix of symlinks and aliases and the same command masquerading as different ones. I don't know exactly why this... It feels like with Groff and TextInfo, and I think there was one more in there that I'm think, that I that I have in my head that I can't think of, but it, it does feel... Oh, ASCIIDoc. It was ASCIIDoc. Uh, A to A2X and ASCIIDoc to this, and it seems like there, there are a bunch of tools that just... They, they can't decide on their own name, and so they just install a bunch of... A, a bunch of versions of themselves and they're all kind of interconnected because if you if you invoke one with a certain option, then it invokes the other one, and so on. So anyway, what these are is uh, Texi2 and then a couple of different things. So I'm going to look in my user bin directory here and just do a list on anything starting with Texi. And it looks to me like like they are actually their own their own executables but they do say in their man pages and info pages and other things they do say and and there are there are man pages and info pages for these which is kind of amusing to me um th they do say that if you invoke this command with this option then you're actually invoking this other thing so i guess we'll go through them anyway so the first one is pdf taxi 2 dfi D dvi rather sorry and and this is exactly one of the ones so pdf Texi to DVI, and I'm gonna pipe that through. Hmm, no, I'm not. I thought I was gonna pipe it through most. Oh, dash dash help, pipe that through most. Okay, there we go. And it says that uh, it, the this this command, well, it, it comes up as Texi to as D, to DVI or Texi to PDF or PDF Texi to DVI. It says run each text info or LaTeX file through text in turn until all cross references are resolved, building all indices. The directory containing each file is searched for included files. The, fu su the suffix of file is used to determine its language, latex, or text info. To process plain text files, set the environment variable to latex equals text. Uh, I didn't do that, and it's been working fine. But Oh, but I'm not doing plain text. I'm doing text info. Okay, that's why. And then it says, when invoked as texty to pdf or pdf texty to dvi, or given the option dash dash pdf or dash dash dvi pdf, then it generates pdf output. Otherwise, it generates dvi. Okay, that's fine. There are others that, that talk about how it's actually invoking something else. Um, anyway, pdf texty to dvi sounds really complex to me, so I'm just going to... I'm going to sort of take them up on their offer of being able to just invoke it as texty 2 pdf Now I'm in my demo folder, so I have a demo.textinfo somewhere. Oh, I'm in a subfolder because I was messing around with the HTML conversion. Okay, so I've got my demo.textinfo file here, or texty file, and if I do a texty and then the number 2 pdf demo.texi, it processes it and it, it seems to end without any visible error tells me that the transcript was written on demo.log. I'm just going to do an ocular of demo.pdf. That launches a PDF that looks for all the world like my sample document. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty attractive sort of professional looking PDF to my eyes. It's got a nice title page here that says my sample title with, with some underlines to make it look really fancy. Next page is mostly blank until you scroll down to the very bottom and then you have that, you've got that copyright notice at the bottom kind of nice. And then the next page is the table of contents. Lists one, first chapter, and then index. And those titles aren't hot-linked, aren't, they're not hyperlinks, but the numbers in the right column are. So if I click on one for the first chapter, it takes me to page, uh, whatever page this is, uh, it says it's page four, that sounds about right, and, um, and it's got my first chapter on it. It's got first chapter, this is my first chapter, 
here's the numbered list. If I keep scrolling down, then I get to the index, and there's my chapter first item, and I can again click on the number to go up to page four, it took me to page four, and so on. So it's a fully functional PDF, in other words. It, it, uses, it uses the mechanisms of the PDF format to retain the, the dynamic nature of the document as it was written in text info, which is quite nice. Now, DVI is a format, as I think I've said before in previous episodes, that I don't know a whole lot about. I don't know why it's useful or when I'll ever use it, so I'm not too interested in that particular command, but I guess I could try it. So texi2dvi demo dot, what is it? Oh, texi. And once again, that seems to have worked. So now I'll do a demo, or I'll do ocular on demo.dvi, and yep, that seems to be a fully functional document as well. Hyperlinks are not evident. I don't see those, so I don't believe that that's a thing in DVI, but the output looks correct. The output looks good. Now, in addition to Texi 2 DVI, or PDF Texi 2 DVI, there's also a uh, Texi 2 Any command, and this is a really cool one. So Texi 2 Any, I'm going to do a dash dash help again and pipe that through most, and it looks like we've got Texi 2 Any options, text info, okay. So we've got uh, document language, uh, error limit, uh, don't care about any of that. Here it is. Output format. You got docbook as an output. You have HTML, plain text, XML, DVI, DVI PDF, PS, PDF, and so on. And now those, if you invoke those options, then this command is actually calling Texi 2 dvi to generate a DVI, DVI PDF, PS, or PDF. Now somewhere in here also is, oh yeah, the revelation that Texi 2 any is, is actually sort of a, I guess, it, it doesn't say this in so many words, but I, what I'm gathering is that this is a, that this is a, a backend for MakeInfo. And it actually says this, yeah, MakeInfo. It says this program is commonly installed as both, oh, it's okay, MakeInfo and, and Texi2Any. The behavior is identical, doesn't even depend on what it's called. Uh, and maybe, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, I don't really even see that MakeInfo is included. So that must be, well, I guess we can find out. Let's do a list-l, ls-l on user bin make info. And sure enough, make info is actually a symlink to texi2any. So if if you've been reading up on text info, which I did a long time ago when I was trying to figure out how to how to turn my dot text info file into an info page for installation. Um, if you read up on that, you, you're usually told you run make info on your text, your .txt file, or your .txt info file, whatever you're calling it. But what you're actually running, I guess, is texi2any. And the output formats, as you've heard, are are numerous, which is pretty cool. So I'm gonna, I'm going to do a texi2any-html on demo.txi. It runs pretty quietly, and it doesn't really tell you what the results were. That's a bit tough. From what I can tell, it creates a directory from the from anything on the left of the dot extension, the dot txi or the dot text info or dot txi or whatever extension you're using. So in other words, I have a folder here in my demo folder called demo, and that's a new entity, so I'm pretty sure that's what just got created. Do an ls and there's some files in there. There's an index.html, and then a first chapter, and an index with a capital I.html. So I'll open these up in conqueror index.html. This is the lowercase index, and that looks like it's correct. So it says sample manual 1.0, table of contents, first chapter, and then index. Next is first chapter, up is directory, and then you can also, you have links, quick links to the table of contents and the, the index itself. I 
click on the table of contents, I'm taken exactly to, to the same location. That's where I am right now. Uh, it says my short sample. This is a short sample text info file. There's the first chapter and then there's the index. So I can click on the first chapter. It goes to the first chapter. I can I can go up back to the to the top of this of this tree. I can click on my index. I can chap. Uh, I can click on the destination of the index and so on. So it is like info in your terminal, except in a web browser. It reacts and acts basically the same. The, the one, I guess, notable exception being that if you if you go to the top, top of your node, then it doesn't know where to go because, of course, there's not really, there isn't a top in this case. This is the actual top. So that's that's the one, the one difference. Um, it does have an expected path, or you could, I guess, change it manually yourself in your in your HTML files. But um, it, it works, it, it, you know, if you, if you if you try it, it'll feel exactly like what you wrote, which is great. That's what we want. So, in other words, I've I've had I've 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 seen several different outputs of this text info system, and so far they are all very much either the same or just a very very similar experience, which is quite an achievement if you think about it. I mean, it, it's really really tough to to take a, a a language, a markup language of any sort, and to process it and and make sure that it's that it's basically the same across all media. And and I have to say Text Info has, has done it really, really well. And I think one of the most pleasant things about it is how how those how, how it maintains its dynamic nonlinear abilities throughout nearly every iteration. I mean the dot the DVI did not, and I don't know why, because I don't know enough about DVI. But certainly with DocBook and HTML and PDF and info, it's it's been exactly the same the same results. You get you get the same layout, such as it is. It's very, very basic, but you get the same layout, get your hyperlinks, you get the same kind of sense of navigation in general. So that's very impressive. That is enviable. That is an enviable place to be. I'm not saying no other text documentation format does it by any means. I'm just saying that's a solid place to be. And I think the end result here is that I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of GNU Info. I think we should probably be, we should give it more credit, we should probably use it more, and forget about man. Just start using info, it will show you man pages when you have a man page, it will show you info pages when something, when there's an info page instead. So use that, take a look at it, maybe learn it, maybe not, depends on what your needs are, but but definitely start using at least the info viewer, if not the info uh, uh, syntax and, and, and markup language. I think that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order AUGcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AUGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
want to get in touch with that evil side.